Hey guys, if I could have the Bible pastors come down um, and hand out Bibles. Uh, just so you know, there's also Bibles in Spanish. So if you want a Bible in Spanish, go ahead and raise your hand too. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, free, feel free to take either the Spanish Bible or the English Bible home with you. It's yours now. Um, so yeah, that's our gift to you guys. So hello, I'm Cassidy. I'm on staff here with Chi Alpha. Um, and I'm going to tell you guys a story. Um, so I'm six years old, and f- for the f- <laughs> Okay, in the story, I'm six years old. Travel back with me to six-year-old Cassidy. <laughs> I'm definitely 22 right now. Okay, um, so this is, for the first time in my life, I'm riding my bike without training wheels. Don't laugh at me. Um, I was a very cautious six-year-old. Um, so here I am, I'm riding my bike. I had a helmet, I had a pink bike, life was good. And then suddenly we come to this giant hill. And the tiny six-year-old, this is like the biggest hill I'd ever seen. Is it on? Oh, here we go. So this is the biggest hill I'd ever seen. It wasn't really, but it was huge to me. And in my mind, like, doomsday had arrived. I was not mentally prepared for this hill. I'd, like, I'd come around a turn, and the hill was, like, right there. So I had no time to think about this. Um, so I start uh, riding down this hill. Now, sometimes when I get, like, stressed out or I'm in a stressful situation, my brain kind of just turns off. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced this. But I'm, like, riding down this hill, and I forgot how to brake. Now, this is, like, a kid's bike. So all you have to do to brake is, like, pedal backwards, right? Um, but I'm, like, flying down this hill, screaming at the top of my lungs, I forgot how to break! And my dad is like, pedal backwards! And I'm like, I don't know how! (laughs) You know, it's a horrifying experience for a six-year-old, right? So I'm flying down this hill, and of course I hit a rock, and I go flying over my handlebars, um, and I'm on on the side of the road. And my dad comes like running down the hill, and he like picks me up, and he's like, He's like, you know, all you have to do is pedal backwards. And I was like, I know, I forgot how. And he's like, okay, you know, I had all the scrapes and the bruises, and it was, it was great. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, for the rest of that trip, I definitely walked my bike. Um, there was no way I was getting on that demon-possessed bike again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's my story about the time I forgot how to break. Um, so tonight, um, we're going to continue our study of Romans. Um, But first, we're going to talk about what is the book of Romans about. So the book of Romans is about God and God's purpose for the world. Romans is a letter about God. uh, Paul actually says the name of God more times than he says the name of Jesus, which is interesting. Um, Romans is also very carefully constructed by Paul, the author. Um, You could think of Romans like a four-part symphony. So it has four movements. Um, Each movement is tied together. Um, It's very important for each movement to be together, but at the same time, they're very separate from each other. Um, They stand alone, and they also stand together. Um, So the four movements of Romans are, um, I have it up on the screen, you have chapters 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, and 12 through 16. Um, So there, there are definitely a few major themes that weave in and out of the whole book of Romans. Um, and it reminds you as you're reading through this, all connected, um, that it's, it belongs to one writer and, and it's one book. 
Um, N.T. Wright calls Romans, N.T. Wright is an English theologian who is just amazing. Um, it's one of my favorites. Um, but he calls Romans a mountain peak standing above every other book of the Bible. Only John's gospel and revelation come close to it. Um, he also says of Romans, it is rich, its content is rich and dense and crowded together. We have to put a lot of effort to understand what it's all about. So let's not get lost among the trees and not see the forest. Um, so tonight we're going to continue, continue to read the first movement of Romans. Um, so turn with me to chapter 3, verse 9. And let's take a look at the forest. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we already have, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets, prophets testify. That's Jesus, beat to dubs. Pretty cool. Um, so, I was born a sinner. It's a fact. I do terrible things. I do terrible things to myself, to other people, to the world around me. I mean, for example, just read this section and put your name there. So before Jesus, Cassidy had turned away. Cassidy had become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even Cassidy. Cassidy's throat was an open grave. Her tongue practiced deceit. The poison of vipers was on her lips. Her mouth was full of cursing and bitterness. Her feet were swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery marked her ways. And the way of peace she did not know. There was no fear of God before her eyes. And you know, this is, this is true of me. You know, before I was following Jesus, I was depressed. I thought everyone around me was stupid. I was super bitter. I cussed when I was angry. Um, I was quick to bring people down with my words, uh, people I didn't like or who annoyed me. Um, I was uptight and I had no peace. I was restless. I had, nothing satisfied me. Um, I lied often. I had an anger problem, and I was pretty rude and blunt with my words. Now, to like the casual observer or even like my friends before I was following Jesus, did they see all of that? Oh, no. <laughs> I hid it so well. I had an A plus in having the appearance of goodness. You know, I still had friends. I had a social life. I had a job, and I was well-liked at my job. Um, I did well in my classes. I worked hard at being good and being enough. But the problem is, it's just skin deep. 
it ends. It can't last. You know, the, the dark parts of you, um, they're going to come out eventually. So just think about yourself. What have you done? What is on your list? But why, why do I say all this? Is this? Am I saying all of this to make you feel bad? N- no, definitely not. Um, I say all this because I want to prove a, a point. And because I said earlier, I said a phrase about myself, and I said that phrase, before Jesus. And the reason that's important is because after Jesus, after I knew Jesus, Cassidy had turned towards God. Jesus had given her worth. Jesus had done all that, the good that is needed for all. Jesus had closed the open grave of Cassidy's mouth by conquering the death in her life. Jesus has paid for the deceit she caused and is now teaching her to speak only truth. Jesus has washed clean the poison of vipers on her lips. Jesus has paid the price for all the cursing and the bitterness in her life and is filling her with joy and life and words that renew. Jesus has turned her her feet towards him, and they are now running towards him by his grace. Grace and joy now mark her way, and now Jesus is giving her the way of peace, and she's beginning to know it. And the fear of of the Lord has entered her heart, and she seeks to serve him with her life. What an incredible difference. And if you notice, um, it's Jesus It's Jesus that's done all of these things. You know, the performance is gone. The fake, skin-deep goodness, it's no longer needed. Um, I think uh, that Christians are people learning how to get rid of skin-deep goodness and allowing Jesus to be their goodness instead. I'll say that again. Christians are people learning how to get rid of skin-deep goodness and allowing Jesus to be their goodness instead. Um, Michael said in his message a couple weeks ago, it's because he loves us that he points out that we are sinners. He points out that we are drowning. How many of you guys have read the book of Leviticus? Oh, okay. Maybe half, maybe? Um, so before I read the book of Leviticus, everyone warned me, don't read that book, they'd say. It's super boring. Um, start with an easier book. So for a long time, I didn't read Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, and that was a really big mistake. Don't ever listen to people when they tell you that. It's dumb. Don't listen to that. So for the first, the first time I read the book of Leviticus, I was shocked. The book of Leviticus... Uh, pointed out to me the sin in my life. It showed me how much I was failing at things, how much I was hurting people, but it also showed me how much I needed Jesus. Because, you know, I grew up in the church, so, like, I thought that I was good enough, you know, because I was a good Christian kid. But for the first time in my life, I saw that I actually needed Jesus. And for the first time in my life, I experienced not guilt or condemnation, but an overwhelming knowledge of my need for Jesus. And it caused me to rejoice because I knew that I already had him. So reading the the law, meditating on the law, the book of Leviticus, didn't make me sad or upset, or it didn't make me feel guilty. It just made me realize how much Jesus has done for me 
how much he's forgiven me for. We have to look at the God perspective or we'll never get it. We have to come to the conclusion that we are helpless to help ourselves. Um, We can fake it to a certain point. Um, We can fake being nice to people to a certain point, um, but that's not good enough for God. So in my story before, what I told you before we read Romans, um, remember how I forgot to break? Um, And then I crashed. That's what's going to happen to you and me if we keep trying to be good to hide the bad. Because pretending to be good to be good and then hiding the porn addiction, the food addiction, the self-harm, the gossiping about people, uh, thinking hurtful things towards people all the time, having anger issues, um, it's all going to catch up with us in the end because we're biking down the hill too fast. Um, We're going to continue reading in Romans. Um, We're going to pick up in verse 22. The righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no one different between, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance, which means patience, basically. And he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Can I tell you guys another story? Okay, so this is a story about 10-year-old Cassidy. Um, so my dad took us all skiing. And I'm, I was a very tiny child. So at 10, uh, I technically should have still been like in a booster seat. Um, but that was super embarrassing, so my mom let me stop using one. Um, so we went, we went skiing. And we took the class, you know, on like the little kitty hill, the little tiny hill. Um, and we started feeling pretty proud of our re- recently acquired skiing skills. You know, it's about like a half hour's worth of skiing skills, right? But for a 10-year-old, that's like all you need. Um, so we decided we wanted to try a, a big hill. Um, so my dad puts my sister on the ski lift, and she rides up, and then he puts me on one. And I just barely met the height requirement. And so my dad gets on one behind me. And we're going up the ski lift, and I can't quite see the top. So I'm, like, looking, um, trying to see where I'm going to jump off. And then suddenly I just fall off the ski lift. I slipped right off and landed on the non-skiing side of the slope. Um, It's, like, the steeper side that is just, like, a sheet of ice. Nobody skis down that side. Um, So I'm, like, laying on the ice. And my dad, like, rides by me, and he's like, what the heck? And I'm like, he's like, Cassidy, what are you doing? And I'm like, Dad, help me. And so he, like, he jumps off, and he picks me up. And at this point, 
our only option is to ski down the steeper side um, because we can't get under the ski lift. And so my dad puts me in front of him, and we start skiing down the hill. And we start, we're going, we're going faster and faster and faster because, you know, it's just pure ice. And I'm screaming in pure terror <laughs> because you could see the cars down below, and I'm just, like, completely convinced that we're going to hit the cars and die. And my dad's, like, trying his best to slow us down, and I'm, like, absolutely no help um, in this situation at all. And I can see my mom at the bottom, and she's probably like, oh, my gosh, they're going to die. Um, but somehow, my dad managed to stop us. And we were, like, probably 10 feet from the cars. Or, like, as a 10-year-old, it seemed like 10 feet. So it was, like, really close. Um, and I have never gone skiing to this day <laughs> since then. <laughs> never again. Um, so here is, here is your solution. This is how we bike down a hill without crashing or how we ski down a hill without dying. Jesus skis down the hill holding us, just like my dad held me. It's Jesus who keeps us from falling. But let me tell you, you feel like you have no control. He's got all the control, but at least he'll keep you alive. (laughs) Um, For the past uh, few weeks, we've been talking about the great need we have, how lost we are, how broken And I just pointed out that brokenness can also look like people trying to be good or doing the good thing. So we've heard a lot of bad news about ourselves, about our world, from Romans. Um, We're pretty broken people. But Romans introduces a new concept right here. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So at this point in Romans... Something new has come. We have learned how we are in great need of a Savior, and now we're going to see what God's solution to the problem is. So I have a video to watch with you guys. Um, This video is from a group called The Bible Project. Um, It's by two men. One is a pastor uh, communications professional, and the other is a pastor seminary professor. And they have tons of amazing videos. I really encourage you to watch more of their stuff. Um, But tonight, we're going to watch their video on atonement. Um, So if you could guys turn and watch that with me. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice. But there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead. And we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of 
animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant, and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. And this is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel, suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper. 
which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. Cool. Wasn't that an awesome video? I love that video. I've, I watched it like 10 times, and I still like watching it. Um, it just makes it so clear and easy to understand that Jesus has paid the price once and for all. So this is our hope, guys. Um, not only are we forgiven of our sin and the evil we have done, we now have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, just like it was in Jesus. And we have the power to say no to sin and live lives that are about loving others and doing good in the world. But this good is different than the good before, right? It's not a performance good. It's not so that we are good enough or enough. We do good not because we do good now because that's what our lives were originally intended to look like. Lives that are focused on loving others and putting others before ourselves. So let's just move into some maybe thoughts on like application for tonight. So remember the story about the bike. So are you riding down that hill, yelling at God, I forgot how to resist temptation. I can't seem to stop. I don't know how to stop. Everything in me is desiring to be free of this, but I can't. How do I stop? The sin in my life keeps sneaking up on me, and when I am not paying attention, it comes up again. I hate it, Lord. I want to be free. And then we crash, and the Lord comes and picks us up. But don't we long to never crash again? It hurts to crash. It hurts to mess up again. And it's really frustrating. So maybe for you tonight, um, you should ask someone to pray for you. Ask the Lord to help you um, to stop sinning and resist temptation. Um, maybe there's a spiritual stronghold that's in your life um, that you need prayer for, and that's basically like you're always coming up against this wall, and you can never seem to get past this wall that's in your life. Um, maybe you need prayer tonight for the Lord to break that stronghold in your life. The Holy Spirit really wants to help you. He wants to give you the power to resist temptation. Um, the worship team can come back up. I think that what we really need, um, we really need to know that God loves us. We really need to understand that he is enough for us, that he, God, sent his son Jesus to be enough, that he loves us so much that he wants to give us not only his son, but also the Holy Spirit to renew us and make us new creations and help us resist evil. Um, so tonight, just um, find someone um, to pray for you. Um, there's a few things on the screen or there should be, um, to ask prayer for. You could ask prayer for help from the Lord to stop sinning. You could ask uh, for prayer from, for help from the Lord to break a spiritual stronghold in your life. Or you could pray for forgiveness and pray for freedom from condemnation and that feeling of guilt that is inside you. Um, so don't do this alone. Ask someone to pray for you and with you. Um, that's what church is about, coming um, and being ministered to and ministering to others. 
Um, so let's take this time in worship and, and pray for one another. <laughs> 